Why is it we can't think about a happy future anymore? If you take a very scientific, rational, evidence-based view of the last 200 years, you would see very, very clearly that there is progress and the evidence suggests that there absolutely is progress in the world on average. Maybe our science fiction books and movies about the future being a bleak dystopia all have it wrong and the future is going to be an awesome place, maybe even better than the place we're living now. I'm talking to Kevin Kelly, who's an author and a futurist who has a pretty great vision for the world tomorrow. That's on Science Island, K-A-C-R-L-P 96.1. So, Leah, this week I talked to Kevin Kelly, who is a former editor at Wired Magazine and did some of the best stuff that I think Wired ever did in the late 90s. And um, he's also a futurist and has written quite a few books on the future. And the thing I find really interesting about him is he manages to have a very optimistic view of the future. So my question for you is, can you think of any shows which are or science fiction books which have come out recently which make you want to live in the future? I don't read science fiction, Grant. <laughs> I feel like every book I've picked up recently, uh, every movie, it's sort of like this Margaret Atwood, the world is going to be horrible in 20 years. It's strange because I think technology has probably improved our lives, and not even probably Technology has improved our lives more than anything else, and yet we tend to look at it as a really dark space. Um, Even people as smart as Elon Musk are terrified of it. Yeah, I think because we've experienced in a real way every day how it can radically change your life. Even the way you wake up in the morning has changed in the past 10 years with, you know, setting your iPhone alarm, for example. Um, So the question is, are we going to like how it changes our lives over the next 10, 50, 100 years? Do you find anything spiritual about your iPhone? (laughs) Uh, You can put a meditation app on your iPhone. That's true. And that's probably the most relaxed I've ever been about having to check my phone. The reason why I ask that is because I asked Kevin Kelly about technology and being spiritual. And he gave me an answer, which I didn't really expect. And it kind of blew my mind. So what was that? Well, I can't say it, Leah. (laughs) It'll ruin the show. Tell me now. All right. So I'm really excited to be talking to Kevin Kelly today. He's the founding editor of Wired Magazine, where he still has a title, Senior Maverick. He's also the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Inevitable. Thanks so much for joining me today, Kevin. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to start. You and I were at a event a couple months ago, and there was a topic of discussion there, which was, what time would you like to live in? 
Someone was talking about how they wish they had been born in the past, and you said there's no better time to live than now. Yeah, right. It's it's um, this is the best time in the world ever to be alive and doing things. From the view of the past, it's never been better. Like if you had to be born into the, I mean, if you had a choice, or let me put it this way. If you didn't have a choice of like what gender, what color, what place you were born into, and you know you could be born randomly somewhere, um, and you had to choose when in the past you would be born, you'd be born yesterday. You wouldn't be born a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago because you could be. I mean, your life would be miserable. You're statistically likely to have been, you know, a woman, a slave somewhere without very much. And um, the closer you are to the present, the more likely you are to have at least a better chance of having a life uh, where there's some expression of your own talents. So uh, if I have a choice of time, I'd rather be born in the future for that same reason, because the future is going to be even better on a statistical average. Do you think that thought gets lost in modern conversations about technology i do i think that the future is generally at least in developed countries and particularly in the u.s is now seen as kind of a scary place a place that was only going to get worse that there was some golden era of the past you know make america great again like well when was america great um it's usually if you ask those kind of people who say that usually what they're thinking of is the year that they were 10 years old. That was the peak of, that was the golden era because they were, because they were 10 and they were aware of the world, but they had no responsibilities and it was just perfect. And it's all been downhill since they were 10. And, um, but I think that, um, uh, it's a misreading of what's happening is that in fact there is progress progress is real we're really going on it's unlikely to stop but it seems invisible because we have a there's a, a bias in our information system which is that news even the best news even the news of the new york times and the bbc the best news is biased to unusual occurrences and events whereas most of what progress is about is about things that don't happen to us all right i mean the the normal the normal life a hundred thousand years ago was if you left your village you'd probably be robbed on the way to the town and uh there'd be um you know there'd be all kinds of infections and things there there would be a never-ending sequence of things that would happen to you that don't happen to you now and their absence is actually what progress is but they're they're never that's never going to be the subject of of a news report so we don't we don't hear about it we don't see it it doesn't seem to be visible and then the second issue is that that progress is still very thin it's a small delta between the good things and all the bad all the negative, all the harm that these new technologies create. And so while it's true things are getting better, they aren't getting, they're only better by a little bit. And that 
little bit can get lost in this flood of actual, you know, 49% harm, 49% junk, 49% crap, 49% destruction. There's 51% good stuff, 51% positive, 51% creation. But that 2% delta is lost in the 49% crap and harm. So whose responsibility do you think it is to add an optimistic thread into our conversations about technology? Uh, well, I mean, I would say everybody's. It's It strikes me that we live at a time where almost all of our science fiction, for instance, is really dark, kind of right. uh, Margaret Atwood futures, and it's almost sure. impossible to imagine anything else. Yeah, so... Um... I, I think there's a role for, you know, dissenters and uh, people who see the negative and, and breaks on to where we're going because you can't really see it without a break. So, uh, so I'm not. I don't think I necessarily want the dystopians to go away. I just want to have additional choices. I want to have a higher diversity of scenarios, and so. Um, isn't just uh, science fiction authors, although that would be great, um, and not just Hollywood movie makers, but I think the technologists themselves, I think uh, uh, people who are creating technologies and making them should also uh, contribute to the vision of um, ways in which um, they anticipate not just the good and benefits, but also address some of the potential downsides uh, in a um, concerned way. I mean, we know that there's like AI, and, and in fact, I think I'm encouraged by what's happening with AI because um, while th there's both going on, there's there's very le legitimate concerns about the problems, and at the same time, there's a lot of um, you know a good hype about what the potential benefits will be. And I think this is, AI is actually the first time when we've ever actually rehearsed technology to such an extent before it even exists. Um, uh, so um, I, 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 I think um, the problem is, is that maybe the, it's, it's very logical and rational and people respond to stories so maybe maybe what I'm asking for is storytellers to um, do a better job in trying to imagine the friendly future because people tend to remember stories better than they remember uh, an argument, and um, maybe you know maybe it is the task of people doing stories. But I, but it's hard to, to to blame them because a dystopia story is going to be a better story, and there are such masters at, at it that why would you want to have a story of a friendly future because it's not going to be as good a story. So um, it's a lot to ask for, but somebody has to do it. So you mentioned AI; it's been big in the news. Elon Musk recently started a panel of people to. Um, rein in AI. He's warned that it could be the destruction of mankind. I think uh, Stephen Hawking has made the same argument. Should we worry? Um, no. We shouldn't worry. Um, 
I think, let me put it this way. I think there's a greater than zero chance that what he describes could happen. And so it's like there's a greater than zero chance that a meteor would impact the Earth in the next couple hundred years. But it's a very low probability. And so should you should we worry about an asteroid? Well, we should probably have a few people who are going to be concerned about that, who are working on that problem. But it shouldn't worry most of us, and it shouldn't dictate our own policy. We shouldn't, you know have a government run on the fact that, well, we may get wiped out by an asteroid. So with AI, yeah, there should be, you know, we it's a greater than zero chance, but it's a very low probability. So there could be some people working on the existential threat, but it shouldn't really govern how we regulate AI. It shouldn't really, inve- uh, it shouldn't influence our investments. It, it shouldn't, doesn't really effect is because it's such a low probability. So you talk a lot about the inevitability of technology, and I want to read read you this famous Marshall McLuhan quote, uh, which I'm sure you've heard. He says that man is the sex organ of the machine world. Right. You seem to have a different take on the inevitability of, of technology, even though I, I I think you probably wouldn't disagree with that quote entirely. Am I correct? No, in fact, I've I've repeated that 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 we are the sex that we're the reproductive organs of um, currently we are the reproductive organs of the technium, meaning that um, things like we you know robots reproduce basically by human intervention, which we make new robots at some point or other um, will become less important in that reproduction, where we could imagine autonomously reproducing factories, say, in the far, far, far future. But currently, that's true. Um, when I talk about inevitable, I'm not... So so, so I, I'm not really sure what the question is, but what, what I, I would say, yeah, in a certain sense, that's inevitable in, in some, some long-term thing that, yeah, we'll probably eventually make technological systems robust enough that they could reproduce without us. Um, so, but, you know, I'm, I'm not going that far right now in the, the book, my, my book, the inevitable, I'm talking about the next 30 years and that's certainly not in the prospect in the next 30 years. I'm talking about biases built into technological systems. Any, any system that either that we found in nature or that we make artificially, any system has biases, um, states that it tends to return to uh, or or tendencies is maybe a better term that's just the nature of all systems and technological systems also have tendencies and so what i'm trying to look at is saying these tendencies are baked into the very nature of the physics of the stuff that they're made out of and that um if you have uh you know electronics communication system its bias is to copy things, to replicate them. That's just the nature of the physics of electrons and bits. And therefore, 
um, if you try to prohibit the copying of these systems, you're working against the grain, you're working against the bias. And so the system wants, it leans, it has, it's inevitably going to copy things. And so if you want to see where a system based around these communications is going, it will, copying will be inevitable. And so it's a kind of a soft um, urge. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, a, a drift more than it is of saying, uh, you know, this occurrence will happen. It's saying this direction will happen. Is studying and predicting technology a spiritual pursuit for you? That's a fair question. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, no, I, I've never thought about that, but I guess I would say yes. I would say that I would say that there's a spiritual dimension to it, and um, um, I think in researching the, my second book, what technology wants, I didn't start off that way, but I came to see that technology had very deep roots that went beyond humanity itself and that the roots the deep roots of technology went back to the big bang and that it's an extension that technology is an extension of the same self-organizing forces that assembled stars and planets and planetary systems and life and now technology that they're all basically this basically it's a, it's the same thing complexified over time and that it will, in that sense, also run beyond us into the universe. And so that, and so that, when we mess with technology, and as we ourselves are technology, we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. And that even the people working at a in a in a startup making a app that's going to last for six months, that e even they when they're working on making technology, they're actually not just making consumer stuff, but they're actually participating in a in an arc that runs from the Big Bang through us and beyond. That 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 that's a, that it's a cosmic agenda, which is they're expanding the possibilities in the universe. That that little tiny app that has a six month half life that is just a game. That even that is part of a much bigger thing than themselves, and um, that they're partaking in that thing. So that is a spiritual view, I would say. It seems like that sense of place and that sense of direction would naturally lend itself to to an optimistic vision of the future, or vice versa, or an optimistic view of the future lends lends you in that view. I guess the reason why I jumped to that is because it seems loaded with meaning, which I, I think is an essential part of optimism. I guess so. Um, I'm trying to, you know, think of counter examples. I mean, the, the thing, the thing about it is, is that nobody believes they're evil. Everybody believes they're good. Everybody believes what they believe is good. I think actually most evil, I, I think all evil in the world is committed in the name of eradicating evil for good. It's true in every example I can think of. In fact, the worst evil committed by humans is always in the name of eradicating evil. And um, so they believe that they're good. 
So I, I, I think fundamentally everybody believes that they're good and connected to the good. So I'm not sure that belief in good necessarily makes one optimistic. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who believe they're connected to good, but that it's kind of like um, that they're always going to be in a minority. That that this is that this is against the grain. That it's you know there's heroic in the sense that they're the tides of of evil are are so hard and superior or, or prevalent that the third good may not make much of a dent, but they just need to do it because that's the principle of the thing. And, the, and they're, you know, I would call them pessimistic in that sense. Um, but, but so I, I think my optimism comes from history. Um, because I, because I think that if you take a very scientific, rational, evidence-based view of the last 200 years, you would see very, very clearly that there is progress, and that would all that the, all the conditions of that progress remain, and therefore say there's a very high probability that will that will continue for the foreseeable future, and and there that's where my optimism comes from. It comes from the fact that the evidence suggest that there absolutely is progress in the world on average. I wonder if you see an inevitability when it comes to technology and privacy. Well, in my book, The Inevitable, I talk a lot about the fact that as far as I can see, it seems inevitable, it seems there's a bias in the technology that is going to increase tracking. It wants to track, just like it wants to copy. So that the inherent inherent nature of the physics of things is it wants to record, generate, capture signals, be senses, you know, and absorb um, things and transmit them. And so therefore tracking of various sorts will increase in dimensions and that tracking of everything, both of our lives, the environment, the built environment will all become points sending data into the data sphere. And so everything over time will become more and more tracked. That that that's it's like it, it seems hard to get around that fact that even things that aren't intended to track will track in some capacity. So I think the extrapolation of that view would be that for humans, we can look forward to that in 25 years from now, 50 years from now, our lives, particularly in the digital realm, but even outside in the physical realm, will be tracked far, far more than we are today. So tracking doesn't, so, so tracking and privacy are not directly correlated, um, but there is obviously some correlation. And I think what will move towards is maybe making different distinctions in that word privacy, what that means, what it doesn't mean. Right now, it has a kind of a, kind of think we know what it means, but I don't think it means what we think it means. And I think as we have more and more ways of tracking that we will start to uh, make distinctions in that, what we mean by that. And um, uh, so I don't think we can escape 
tracking of all our behavior or emotions. But what we do with that tracking, how it translates into our lives and how whether we're comfortable with that or not, I think that we have a lot of choice about that. I think we have tremendous choices about how we're tracked and whether it's civilized or whether it's convivial or not. And um, so what's inevitable is the fact that we're going to be tracked and tracking ourselves more. What's not inevitable is what the character of that tracking is. Well, Kevin Kelly, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, the name of your book is The Inevitable. I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking time and asking me some fantastic questions. Uh, I haven't been asked before. I really enjoyed that. So thank you. So that was Kevin Kelly. And I have one more thing before the show ends. A couple weeks ago, I was at a party and one of the guys there had a boosted skateboard, which is one of those electric skateboarders you see people cruising around in the city on and you kind of hope they would crash. Uh, Not nice. I know it was actually very fun to ride. But the strangest thing happened to me two days later. I started getting ads on Facebook and in Google for a boosted skateboard. I've never searched for it. I have no idea how much it costs or what their website is. But somehow it seemed like Google or Facebook or the ad world had figured out that I had recently ridden a boosted board and was now trying to advertise it to me. So my question for you is if you've ever had something like this happen, some uncanny ad which has popped up in your feed and you can't figure out how it was linked to anything you've searched for or anything you've looked at, and it almost seems like the Internet's listening to you, I would like to hear about it. I really want to get into why these algorithms are serving what they are and what data Google and Facebook have on us, which we just aren't aware of. Is it coming from our credit cards? Is it coming from our chats with our friends in Gchat? Spoiler, yes, it is. Basically, I'm trying to have this conversation without sounding like a crazy person, but I really feel like ad technology is listening to us or finding out things about us, maybe by figuring out something about our searches in ways that we can't possibly guess right now. And I want to hear from you. So email me gburningham at gmail.com or you can find me at twitter i'm grant eb just drop me a line and tell me if anything weird has ever happened to you with advertising it just so you don't think i'm totally crazy i'm going to tell one which everybody who's been pregnant is aware of and that is before my wife told anyone in our family that she was pregnant the first time we started getting free infant formula in the mail. And I'm guessing the reason why that happened was a combination of credit card records and those drugstore reward systems that we're all members of so we can save a dollar here and there. Basically, they're able to figure out these things about you and sell them to you uh, without you knowing. And it's kind of creepy, and I don't think it should be a secret to anyone that this stuff is getting sold. So I'd really like to do a show in the future about what's going on there and see if we can get to the bottom of it a little bit. So that's it for our show. Thank you so much to Leah Hitchens, my co-host of Science Island, and also to Kevin Kelly. It's always a pleasure to talk to Kevin. We are on Twitter at Sci Island. That's S-C-I Island. And this week we're going to be putting up a podcast for the first time, so you'll be able to listen to our show on the go or share it on the web. 
And our theme song is by Brent Amaker and the Rodeo. If you liked anything at all about today's show, or maybe you didn't like anything at all about today's show, I would love to hear about it. Please find us on Twitter and drop us a message. And I would also love to know what you guys would like us to cover in the future. As always, this is Science Island 96.1 KACRLP. 